I had really felt that ever since uh, I came back, I, I don't know what happened to me, but on, on the airplane coming back, I, I just felt like God was, just this thought kept uh, coming in my mind that we needed to think about and talk about ending well. Finishing the race. And so I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to do. So I sat down and thoughts just started to come to me and I, I came up with sort of four points. And this, this, these are the four parts that I came up with. You, if you're going to end well, you've got to start well. Well, that makes sense. Then you've got to continue well because people get way later. They get sidelined or sidetracked or they quit along the way. You've got to get started again, so you've got to continue well. Number three, you've got to retire well. And number four, you've got to die well. And so I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach those four parts. Well, I had, by the time I got to the end of this week, I realized I had a three or four part series here. <laughs> and so um, I'm, uh, I'm kicking Chris out next week. And No, no, I'm not. But uh, uh, I'm just going to take one of those four, I'm gonna, and it goes in that sequence, and I'm going to take continue well in order to finish well. So we're talking about finishing well, but I'm just going to take the second part, and I'm going to, uh, it's four-part series, and so I'm going to preach it over the next two years. And uh, <laughs> whenever I get a chance to, uh, whenever the young guys will let me speak, then I'll, uh, uh, then I'll, f I'll finish my series. I've, I actually have another two-part series that I had done before that, so uh, I got some catching up. Anyway, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, it says, For I am already being poured out. This is Paul speaking. Paul was in prison for the second time in Rome. And he had finished his three missionary journeys. He had, been, uh, he, he had been shipped off to Rome in his first imprisonment. He had been let go. He was rearrested. He's back in prison. Now he's writing Timothy. In fact, he only wrote one uh, letter that we know of from, from prison that second time. He wrote a bunch of prison epistles the first time. But the second time, he wrote one more. And it was to Timothy again. We call it Second Timothy. And in there, he writes the following. And he knows that he's about to die. It, it, he's all, obviously, he's received his sentence already. And this is what he writes, and I'd like you to read it together with me. Here we go. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Let's pray. Father, we intentionally choose now to receive your word. We were just singing about your word and how precious it is to us. And Psalm 119 talks about uh, that it's food to our souls and that it's more precious than gold. And we want to say to you that your word is precious to us. And right now, we want to receive it from you. And Lord, as we think about ending well, we want to end the way Paul did. We want to finish the race that you've given us uh, to run. And so we ask you this morning, we choose to say with you this morning, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you. We want to see what you have for us, and we intentionally choose right now 
to receive that word and to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying? Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I'm focusing, as I said, on the second of these four parts in, ending, uh, in finishing well, continuing well. Many get started, and then somewhere along the way, they flame out or quit. And in 25 years that I've, I've been uh, leading two churches, I've seen it many, many times. In fact, I've seen it right here at Southland many, many times. There are people that leave, or they quit, or they quit on God, or they, uh, or, or they get discouraged, or they stop, whether, they're in the ch- whether they remain in the church, or whether they leave the church, or whether they quit the faith altogether. We have net growth every year. We have, for, this is our 18th year, and we've always grown. However, it's a net growth. And it doesn't mean that people, there aren't people quitting. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've become discouraged or, or something and, and you've slowed down. And God is saying to you, I want you to end well. I want you to finish well. And that's what we're talking about uh, this morning. Once when Jesus had finished some teaching, it says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed. And then he asked his disciples, do you want to go away as well? Are you going to leave too? Some leave, uh, as I said, God altogether. Others leave the church. Still others remain in the church, but they're out of the race. Sideline, not going anywhere. So what is it that takes people out of the race? That's the part we're going to be talking today because we're in the part two of the continuing part. But what takes them out of the race in the first place? And there's five things uh, that I noted, but there was, uh, there's way more than I can cover. So we're going to, though I'll list five, we'll actually only talk about three of them this morning. And the first one is, Disappointment with God. And Chris just touched on it uh, briefly as he, as he was going through his wonderful message and series there last week. And I want to go back and I want to focus on that and just develop that or unpackage that for, for us just a little bit and from another angle. Disappointment with God sidelines many Christians. Many Christians. Uh, you may be disappointed with God because you lost your spouse or a son or a daughter. Or you may be disappointed with God because he's not healing you. Or because you lost your job or career or dream. Or you may be disappointed with God because your son or daughter are away from the Lord, even though you've prayed and prayed. Or you may be disappointed with God because you've prayed and prayed to get a husband or a wife, but God still hasn't given you one. And you're disappointed. Or you may be disappointed with God because he did give you a spouse, and then when you opened the package, it wasn't what you thought it was. (laughs) And so you're disappointed with God. I want to talk to you a little bit from a testimony that Johnny Erickson Tata gave. And this is what happened as a teenager, uh, Johnny, and many of you have heard of her, but she loved life. And she enjoyed riding horses. She loved to swim. And one summer in 1967, that all changed in a diving accident. She was diving into a shallow lake, didn't know it was shallow, and broke her neck and was paralyzed, became quadriplegic for the remainder of her life. She's still alive, 40-some years later, cannot move her hands, cannot move her limbs, uh, cannot move anything. That would be disappointing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a tremendous loss? And, uh, and she learned some things through that. She, she lay in the hospital at first. She, uh, she was depressed and discouraged and begged some of her friends to assist her with, uh, in suicide by slitting her wrists or dumping a bunch of pills down her throat. She asked many of her friends to do it. She says that. And uh, she just wanted to end her misery. 
It was too much, too much pain, too much suffering, too much misery, too much loss, and uh, just a teenager. There was no point to living without the use of her hands and legs, she says. She says it even shipwrecked her faith for a time. She says she had many clenched-fisted or angry questions for God, but she said over time those clenched-fisted questions became questions of a searching heart. And she reasoned, look, I trusted God before the accident. I was a believer. I was doing, I wasn't a bad person. There's certainly a whole lot of worse persons than I, and this hasn't befallen them. Why me? This couldn't possibly, she reasoned, be a punishment for sin I've done. So I don't see how this is all loving and, and this all loving and powerful God is worthy of my trust and confidence. Who is in control anyway, she asked. Whose will is this anyway? She, had, uh, she says there were a lot of people, that, well-meaning people that came and patronized her with all kinds of, uh, all kinds of answers. And the, uh, you know, all of these easy platitudes, 16 reasons why God, why God put you in this mess. You know, that's not what a person who's in pain needs. Did you know that? When somebody's in pain, here's the advice I've got for us. Sit down and be quiet. Job had three friends, useless. They should have never gone to his bedside, should have never gone to the hospital where Job was staying. They had all the answers in his suffering. It just increased his suffering. It didn't help him. It didn't relieve anything. And uh, anyway, she experienced that. But she had a friend. His name was Steve. And, uh, and, uh, and Steve was, uh, he was a little different. He didn't give the easy platitudes. Instead, he pointed to Jesus' suffering on the cross. Now, that's interesting. How many people would do that? He pointed to Jesus' suffering on the cross, and he asked, Whose will do you think that was? Well, she responded, well, God. We all know that from Sunday school. And uh, Steve says, but Johnny, think it through. Because you better believe that it was Satan who entered the heart of Judas Iscariot who handed Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. Is that true or not? Church, is that true? Yeah, it's, uh, Scripture says that. Satan entered uh, into Judas, remember? Right in front of Jesus it happened. And you've got to know, uh, Steve continued, that it was Satan who instigated that mob on the streets to clamor for Christ's crucifixion for sure. Wouldn't you agree with that? And it had to be the devil who prodded those Roman soldiers to sp uh, spit on Jesus and slap him and mock him. Wouldn't you agree with that? And number four, even the devil inspired Pontius Pilate to hand down mock justice in order to gain political popularity. We would agree with that. And she did. How can any of these, Steve asked her, be God's will? Treason, injustice, murder, torture. How can it be God's will? It didn't make any sense to her. And Steve just sat there as she tells the story. And then quietly he turned to Acts chapter 4, verse 28. And, uh, and this is what he read. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Whoa, wait a minute. They did what who decided? Whose will was it? Yahweh. Yahweh or God. Exactly right. It was his will. Wait a minute. Satan was involved. It looks like God's involved in this thing. 
The cross was no mistake, though the devil had his hands all over it. Somehow Johnny could see heaven and hell were participating in the exact same event, but for different reasons. That's how it always is. We're always wondering who caused what. And you know what? Usually there's two of them involved all the time. But they have complete, completely different motivations, God and Satan. Satan's motive for Jesus on the cross was to stop the Son of God in his tracks. No more talk of redemption and reconciliation. Amen? No more. Let's just kill him. Let's get rid of him once and for all, and I won't have, my, I won't have this problem with all my minions. But God always aborts devilish schemes to accomplish his own ends and purposes. The world's worst murder became the world's only salvation. Incredible. Which is precisely what we see in the Joseph story when he says to his brothers, what you intended for what? What you intended for? Evil. Evil. God intended for? Good. Right. Steve let those words sink into Johnny's heart. And then she realized that when she took the careless dive, heaven and hell had both participated in that somehow. Both of them. Wow. And uh, the devil had, uh, had hoped to shipwreck her faith, as he has done with many, when they face disappointments and suffering and pain and loss and hurt. And he had, uh, and he had hoped to ruin her family. Can you imagine how that would have changed her family? It just didn't, it didn't just affect her. Can you imagine how it affected her whole family around her? And maybe, you're, maybe you've got people in your own home that are wrestling with huge issues. And it's not just them that are uh, wrestling with it. You're wrestling with it as well because of it. And Satan tries to come along and he tries to knock everything out. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, we always say, right? Because that's what Scripture says. And she discovered the true meaning of Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work to, uh, uh, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his what church? Called according to his purpose. God wasn't saying that all things are good. Was it good that Jesus was tortured? Yes or no? Church, you can go ahead and talk to me. Maybe you can't talk to Chris, but to me you can talk. Was it good that Jesus was tortured? No. Was it good that he was crucified? No. Was, it, was, was the injustice at his trial, was that any good? How about that he was betrayed? No, it was all bad. Satan was behind every bit of it. But God allowed it, and God has the ability to go in the middle of those things and turn them around for good. Is that amazing? You aren't able to do that, and I am not able to do it. Nobody in the universe can do it, but God can. God wasn't saying that all things are good, only that he had the desire, ability, and power to turn bad things into a plan for good. And the good that came out of her disability, this is according to her. I'm not saying it. She's saying it. I would never venture to talk for a quadriplegic. I just feel like I need to shut up and sit down. I'm just saying what she said, and this is what she said. Number one, she said, my values changed from wrong side down to right side up. She said, I used to think that happiness was a date on Friday, or to be slim and trim at 135 pounds, size 12, a college degree, nice little, uh, nice little home in suburbia with 2.5 children. 
And she said, my values have changed in the middle of all this. She said, I now see that it is love, warm and deep and personal and real between a husband and wife or siblings or neighbors or attendants or appreciating little things like watching the leaves or seeing into another person, looking into their eyes and into their heart. Or she said, uh, I, I've, my character has been developed during this time. I'm not saying it. She said that. She said, patience and endurance and tolerance and self-control and long-suffering, sensitivity and love and joy. She said, I did not have that before. Now I have that. And uh, she said, I have a lively hope for heavenly glories. Now, uh, Chris talked about, uh, you know, a living hope some time back. There's a lot of people who have a theory about a living hope. They know the Bible says there's a hope after they die, but it's not a lively hope. It's not something they think about during the day. It's not something that gets them excited in the middle of the day and say, oh man, I'm, gonna, I'm close. She said, I have a lively hope. And she said, I, you know what? I can't tap dance right now, but I'm going to very shortly. That's true. Uh, she had a lively hope. She said, and, and of course, then we know her accomplishments. She didn't say this. Uh, she wouldn't because she, that's the kind of person she's become. But we know this, that she's written 14 books, recorded several musical albums, painted pictures, and founded a huge ministry known around the world, all as a quadriplegic. Is that amazing or is that amazing? Many wear gold crosses. My wife gave me one many years ago. Think of it. Isn't that a bit odd? A cross is an instrument of torture. It was the worst torture developed by mankind. The cross. And we walk around hanging gold ones around our neck. In fact, we stick it on the, on the, uh, on the front of our building there. Prominently displayed. Big thing so everybody driving by can see it. Can you imagine if we, uh, if we, uh, if we hung gold guillotines or, uh, you know, or gold... Uh, uh, scaffolds or nooses, or how about syringes for lethal injections? Oh, that'd be a beauty around my neck. That'll go good with my dress. I can just see some women say, Oh, that's the one I want today. I want the needle. <laughs> no, no, give me the noose. It's bizarre. Can you imagine if we hung that on, prominently on the front of our building out there for everybody to see as they drove in and out of Steinbeck? It just would seem bizarre. But why am I talking like this? Would you wear such a thing around your neck? Of course not. So what makes the cross different? Why are we okay with wearing a gold cross around our neck and displaying it prominently on our building for everybody in the community to see? Why? Because Jesus exchanged its meaning. What once was a symbol of death and destruction and pain has become a symbol of hope and victory. Amen? We don't go around thinking, we see that, oh, and think gruesome, awful thoughts. We think victory and hope and going to heaven. Amen? And Jesus finished and completed it all. That's what we're thinking. And so God exchanged the name. What once was a symbol of death and destruction and pain has become a symbol of hope and victory, and that's why we wear them, because it has new meaning. He changed the meaning. And the same is true of your life as well. 
God wants to exchange the meaning of your disability or the meaning of your suffering or the meaning of your disappointment or pain or hurt or loss. He wants to change the meaning of it. And he wants to turn it into something of victory and hope and something that will bring you great reward in the end. Amen? And the very thing that's causing you to, to drop out of the race or slow down in the race or, or quit on God because of your disappointment is the very thing that he's going to use to make you victorious and, and finish it well. Wow, what a God, amen? Only God can do that. Let God reach down into your deepest disappointments and loss and pain and let him turn it into something good for yourself and for his glory. Here's the second reason that uh, people pull out, and I'm not going to develop it. I've got notes here for it, but I can't, even, I can't even get to it. Love of this world. And Demas, uh, that, that's one, one of the disciples of uh, Paul, he left Paul and quit following him because he loved the things of this world, but we were not going to develop it. Number three, but you can just note it down because it'll help you with your homework uh, for, uh, for at the end of the message. Number three, Refusal, another reason that many people drop out of the race is because uh, of a refusal to forgive and be healed. Many people have experienced deep emotional injury through attacks of a parent, sibling, or relative, or, or through withdrawal from the same, either an attack or withdrawal. They withdrew their love, or they, uh, they constantly attacked. Many, most of us here have been wounded somewhere in the past, and because we're parents, we've also passed it down, Amen. And uh, hurt people hurt people. Amen? That's what happens. And these injuries must be healed. Or you will run into some relational issue and then you'll flame out. For example, suppose, uh, su suppose there's somebody sitting here, and, and there's no doubt that it's probably a whole bunch of you here, who uh, received no approval and love when you were young. And so uh, people like that, they crave approval and love. They they've been living in a vacuum. They've been starved of it. So now they work incredibly hard at church. Did you know that sometimes when people take a volunteer position in the church, we, we spot it after a while. I've spotted after years and years in ministry, I can sometimes spot it. And I can tell that they're unhealthy. And some of our staff can tell it as well. They get in there, and they are the hardest workers. They overwork. I remember one woman back in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo many, many years ago. Uh, I was still in my 20s, and she was ministering in the church, and she was a volunteer, and she did everything. She won awards for bringing the most people to church. She was, she was just serving, 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 and she would go hard, 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 and one day her marriage fell apart. And the reason is because she was looking for approval and love. She was craving it, and she was doing it by working hard, hoping that somebody in the church would come along and just heap praise and approval and love on her. Now, here's what happens. Um, uh, what happens is they work incredibly hard in the church, and they're not noticed. Um, they're, they're, they might be working in the kids' area there, or they're working with properties or whatever, and they're working twice as hard or three times as hard or four times as hard as anybody else. And guess what? The pastor puts Tupandani people up there. He puts church renewal people up there. 
He puts camp people up there. He puts all kinds. But he never saw me. See the problem? And now they get bitter. Uh, I worked so hard, I never get the approval. He never, he doesn't know my name. He has, and I don't mean necessarily it's me, but it could be somebody else in the church, some other staff member, whatever. So they become bitter because nobody notices what I'm doing and all they need, it's not the, it, what they're really looking for is something that's lacking from the past. And so you have trouble in the church. Many churches have problems with people because of that kind of thing. They become bitter with the church leadership. No one appreciates them. So they become bitter or sullen or they quit. And sometimes they stay in the pew, but they've quit. They're just filling the space. They just look at you sullenly like this. They're not engaging, and you know it. And it's because they're hurt on the inside. Something's missing. They've got to get to the place of healing. Or uh, sometimes, uh, maybe they were young and they were constantly criticized. You can't do anything right. You know, a parent or whoever, constantly criticized them. They could never do anything right. So now they're in the sound, uh, you know, in the sound booth area. That, that's typically where they, they are, you know. It's the sound guys. <laughs> no, no, we got great sound guys. <laughs> so now you got a volume problem in the church. We had this many, many years ago. And uh, you got a volume thing, so now you go, oh, shoot, these are very touchy people. And you know that already because you've talked to them before. So now the pastor tiptoes over there and says, you know what? It's 150 decibels in here, and people are holding their hands over here, and they really don't even know God is here. <laughs> they can't hear him because there's so much noise. Is there any chance you could just... Turn it. You're doing such a good job, such a good job, but could you please turn it down? That constructive criticism is enough. It, it reminds them. There, it's like there's a wound in the skin there, and the minute somebody touches it, ah, they hit back. Uh, you know, a Ray Yoder uh, that causes them a lot of problems in this, in this church. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he's so critical. Uh, I'm not, but Ray Yoder is. So they try to be... That's why I send the rest of us. I hired staff and I send them out. People think I'm nice. <laughs> but the rest of the staff, uh, <laughs> no, no. And they, and they get really upset. And you know what the problem is? It has nothing to do with the constructive criticism. We're trying to guide them because this isn't about us. We always say to our volunteers, we always say to our staff, this church and your ministry and what you're doing has nothing about you. It's about God and it's about others. But now they're offended. And so they become sullen or they become bitter or they get angry. And, uh, and, and it's all because they're hurting on the inside. And uh, they need to be healed. But God says you can do that. You know, in my first, in my first pastor back in, in uh, Woodstock many, many years ago, I, uh, Fran and I, actually suffered a, a true injustice. I mean, a, 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 an elder's wife, she screamed at my wife. I mean, she screamed, she lied, she gossiped. She was just one of the worst I'd ever met. And when she screamed at my wife and told her to get her out of her house and she lied to the elders and all that kind of stuff, I remember getting in the car and I said, I vowed, I said, no one will ever do this to me again. I have my career, I don't have to be treated like this. And from then, in my heart, I began to secretly plot 
my escape from the church. I was quitting. And I didn't, I, my heart didn't, oh, you know, and your heart doesn't even see it because you deceive yourself. And you think it's all justified. Was she right in what she was doing? No. Does, does that mean that I should be quitting? Yes or no? No. I'm not serving and following somebody else. I'm serving and following who? Jesus. And, I, and he calls me to end well, and he calls me to end even when it's painful. Amen? And, um, and so I wanted to go back to flying and stuff. And I began to plot how I was going to get out of that church. Because I said, unthankful, good-for-nothing people. I don't need to be treated like that. Have you ever felt like that? Lots of people flame out right at that spell. But you know what? Thank Jesus. He knew that I was hurting on the inside. And so I was defensive when somebody was, was wrong uh, towards me. And so you know what he began to teach me? How I could find inner healing. How I could be delivered from bondages and all that kind of stuff. It became our encounter out of that. He turned it into something wonderful. Amen? That's what Jesus can do. Um, that, that's really what he can do. And you, you know what's uh, very interesting? In fact, it says in Psalm 34, 18... Um, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Isn't it true? Well, this year, on March the 7th of this year, 2013, I became very famous. <laughs> very famous. In fact, uh, or maybe we should call it infamous. <laughs> maybe that's a better word for it. And I was in Kelowna and found out uh, that I was very popular in the media here. And uh, uh, then I began to get a bunch of emails. Some of them, oh, they were nasty. But you know what? You don't even know they're nasty if you only read the first two words and don't read the rest. <laughs> and, uh, but do you know what I discovered? A few months after the fact, I noticed I was pressing on as hard for Jesus as I ever had on church renewal and all kinds of stuff with Toop and Donnie and in our, behind the scenes with our staff trying to, uh, trying to do the work of Christ. And I noticed that it wasn't even bothering me. And one day I'm sitting at my office, at my desk, and I'm going, hey, wait a minute. I should be waylaid by now. I mean, compared to what that one woman did back there, this was way worse. And you know what I found? They didn't bother me. You know why? Because I was healed on the inside. I was fixed on the inside. Amen? Listen to me. Well, a marketplace leader, years ago, he said, uh, I knew that, you know, he told me a story, and he told me about his past. He told me his, about his father and, and st stuff, and he, was, and he was successful and stuff. And, and, I, and so I asked him about what he did with that stuff. And you know what he said to me? I just suck it up. It's all good. That's what he said. I just suck it up. It's all good. You know what? I'm going to tell you right now. There is no such thing as sucking it up. It's all good. There is no such thing. When you are wounded from the inside, you will respond out of that without being even conscious of it. And so the only one who can heal a broken heart is who? Jesus. Jesus. He can heal your heart. And maybe you've been waylaid, and, and you're saying, well, it's because, uh, you know, Ray Yoder said that. No, it's not because Ray Yoder said that or anybody else said that. 
It's because of the hurt inside that you're responding like that. That's what happened to me. That's what's happened to many others. But listen to me, you don't have to live like that and you don't have to flame out and you don't have to sit in a, in a pew or in a chair for the rest of your life. You can get up and continue and end well. Amen, church? Yes, you can. But you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a choice. And, and, you know, there's this axiom that we sometimes use, and it says, uh, and this is how it goes. It says, when you don't forgive, you're not really hurting them. You're only hurting yourself. Have you heard that axiom before? Have you used it before? I have. And uh, that axiom actually isn't true. That is not true. It is not true that when you don't forgive somebody else, you're not hurting them. You're only hurting yourself. You are hurting them and yourself. You see, when you don't forgive somebody else, you don't release them to continue. And then you know what happens to them? They don't forgive themselves. And when they don't forgive themselves, they don't feel worthy of serving Jesus. And guess what they do? They get sidelined. And now you've got not one, but two that are out of the race. Amen? And so it's important that we deal with our inner stuff. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's very, very important. We've got an encounter coming at the end of October again. <clears throat> we'll have pastors and others coming in as well. But uh, it's very important that we deal with it. But you don't have to wait to the end of October. You can, you can call for a personal ministry session and deal with your stuff. It's very, very important. And then you can finish well as well. Here's the, here's the fourth one. And we won't have time to deal with it now. Refusal to forgive yourself. <laughs> That's a fourth reason that um, some people go, I've done such bad things, Jesus could never forgive me. I can't believe it. I was unfaithful back there 15, 20 years ago. I cannot believe it. And Jesus, uh, I don't deserve that. That's another whole point I just don't have time to deal with today. Number five, those who quit in persecution. Now, this reason for flaming out or dropping out or quitting is one that we have not known very well in Canada because we haven't faced persecution. But already I'm seeing people who are dropping out because of this one over, uh, over the biblical teachings on marriage and sexuality. And already with some of the uh, trouble that's been stirred up here in Manitoba and uh, this, uh, we've got this whole climate that's, uh, that's, uh, that's coming up we're going to see more, more Christians who will be flaming out over this one right here. And they're going to get sidelined, and they're going to stop, and they're going to quit because of persecution. Jesus said that. You know, in the parable of the four soils, that was one of the soils. He said in Matthew 13, he said, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and what? Persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he what? Falls away. Wow. When standing with Jesus and his word gets tough, some fall away. It appears that this is what happened to other uh, supporters of Paul as well. Uh, in 2 Timothy, again, just before he's dying, he says to Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Not only did they turn away from Jesus, they turned away from Paul too. And, uh, and then he names two of them. He said, among whom are Phygelus and 
Hermogenes. Two of them did. And when you look at the context of that passage, one of the things that you see is that one of the reasons that they did it was because Paul was in chains and now he was, he was, uh, he was sentenced to death and they were, ashamed of his, uh, they were ashamed of his chains and his imprisonment. So uh, when that happened, it appears that they turned away. But not all do. And I want to give you a, mo a more modern day. It's not completely modern day. It's, it's back... Uh, a bit, but I want to talk to you about a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, I read his book uh, in, back in July, 550 pages, by Eric Metaxas, and I recommend that you read this book. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a brilliant man. He's born in Germany, Breslau, Germany, in 1906. Counts, musicians, artists, and theologians were in his mother's family line. She was a teacher. Judges, professors, doctors, and lawyers were in his father's line, and his father was the head of psychiatry and neurology in Berlin. One brother became lead lawyer for the state airline Lufthansa, and another one became a distinguished scientist. Bonhoeffer himself was an accomplished music, uh, musician. In fact, they, they thought that is maybe what he would go into. He was the younger of the four brothers. He had some sisters as well. He had a twin sister, Sabine. And, uh, uh, but when he was uh, in his teens, though he didn't come from a particularly Christ-following type of family, they were religious, as much of Germany was, uh, but they, uh, he chose to, to uh, theology instead, and uh, to the dismay of many in his family. So in 1927, at only 21 years of age, he passed his doctoral examination at the University of Berlin with the distinction of sum, uh, summa cum laude and became a professor of theology in, in prestigious universities. In 1930, Adolf Hitler was elected Chancellor of Germany and would remain in power 15 years. 1933, years, uh, 1933 Hitler staged the burning of the Reichstag, which is the uh, which was uh, Germany's uh, equivalent to a parliament building, which then allowed him to suspend the um, Constitution and its accompanying personal liberties. And by March, he introduced the Aryan paragraph in which non-Aryans or Jews lost their state jobs. And you have to understand, many, many Jews were at the core of society at that time. They held some of the most uh, important jobs with their businesses and professions and so on. And uh, within months, Jewish businesses were boycotted. Jewish doctors, lawyers, professors, dentists, journalists, musicians, and so on were prohibited from practicing. And then Hitler formed the Reich Kirche, or church, Reich Church. And his idea was to take all the churches of Germany, put them under one, and under the Nazis directly. And uh, he appointed a henchman, whose last name was Müller, and this huge group of churches became known as the German Christians. And they, um, they were happy to follow along, believe it or not, with what Hitler was doing. And they supported him, uh, supported him in much of what, what he was doing. Uh, their leaders throughout the Jewish Old Testament, the Old Testament because it was Jewish, and they twisted New Testament passages against the Jews, such as, for example, John chapter 8, 44, you'll recognize the passage where Jesus is speaking, and he says, you are of your father the devil, and, you will, uh, and your will is to do your father's designs. Of course, uh, he was, Jesus was referring to the religious leaders who were not 
they were not Christ followers at all. And they were religious, but they were not, they, they did not love God. Then they, but here they applied it to the Jews, uh, Hitler and his, and the Reich Kirche. They purged their hymn books of all Jewish words, many of the hymns, you know, that had words like Hosanna and, and Hallelujah and Sabbath and any of those kinds of words that would have a Jewish overtone, they removed them from their hymn books. And all pa uh, Jewish pastors removed, were removed from their church pastorates. So uh, men who had become pastors and uh, happened to be Jews, Jewish in the background, their lineage, they were removed from their pastorates. And uh, all under the auspices of, this, of these German Christians or this massive group of churches who uh, endorsed what, uh, what um, Hitler was doing. Bonhoeffer and others began to take a stand for the truth and for the Jews, forming the Pastors' Emergency League, which later became the German Evangelical Church, or they, they often were called the Confessing Church, and where they confessed Jesus as Lord. They, they weren't heretical like this other group. And he then founded a seminary for these churches. He left the other prestigious ones in the university, and he organized pastoral resistance to the Nazis through the Confessing Church, both from within Germany and without. He'd go to England and places like that, and he'd go to the outside, he'd slip across the border, and then he would try to uh, garner support and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And uh, in 1936, the Nazis arrested and imprisoned 800 such pastors from the Confessing Church. In 1938, Bonhoeffer was arrested and banned from Berlin. Uh, he was put on a train and just shipped away from Berlin and warned not to come back. That April, the head of the Reich Church, or Kirche, proposed that all pastors make an oath of obedience to Hitler, but confessing church pastors felt it would be like bowing down to a false god, kind of like the early churches wouldn't bow down to Caesar. In 1938, uh, was in September, uh, was the, night, the, the infamous Kristallnacht, or Night of Broken Glasses, or glass, and in two days and two nights, 1,000 synagogues were burned, 7,500 Jewish businesses were ransacked or looted, 91 Jews were murdered, and 30,000 Jews were arrested, and the Jewish community was fined for and ordered to clean up the rubble that was left. They were fined for what was done to them. And it was the beginning of the end. Hitler had uh, orchestrated the whole thing. In January 23rd of 1939, Paula Bonhoeffer saw conscription notices being posted all over Berlin, and it was for males born in 1906 and 1907. Well, Dietrich was born in 1906, and so she immediately warned her son of that, and because of what he believed uh, about this war being unjust, uh, because they were declaring war on other countries and taking their countries over, Bonhoeffer didn't want to be part of the war, so he slipped out of Germany to London, and there he asked a visiting American lecturer to, uh, lecturer to get him a teaching post in America and, uh, so that he could escape the conscription for at least a year. He soon had a couple of prestigious offers because he was well known uh, uh, around the uh, first world and uh, because, uh, because he was so brilliant. And so on June the 12th, 1939, he sailed for New York City. But he felt unsettled when he got to New York and thinking perhaps, uh, and he began to think that perhaps he had made a mistake in fleeing Germany. 
On June 24th, just days later, he was meditating in Isaiah when he read this. Isaiah 28, 16, and it's coming up. It says, The one who believes does not flee. And the minute he read that, the Holy Spirit was moving in his heart. And he felt that God was speaking to him. Two days later, his journal entry says this. Today I read by chance in 2 Timothy 4, Do your best to come before winter. Can you believe that? And he immediately knew that God was speaking to him, exactly what he had been feeling and sensing already, that perhaps he shouldn't have done it, and now it seemed like God was specifically speaking to him. And in fact, he said of this in his journal, he wrote, and I quote, Timothy is to share the suffering of the apostle and not be ashamed in this passage that he is reading. It is not a misuse of Scripture, he said, if I take that to be said to me, if God gives me grace, I will do it. And so on July the 7th, 1939, he returned to Germany, having been in America only 26 days. He became part of a vast conspiracy uh, that included many of the generals and many of the leading citizens uh, in Germany uh, to assassinate Hitler. On April the 5th, 1943, the Gestapo arrested him on other charges of opposing the laws against Jews and for fighting to keep pastors from being conscripted. He was in Tegel military prison for 18 months. And while in prison, the plot to assassinate Hitler was carried out on July the 20th, 1944, but as you know from the movie Valkyrie, it failed. Hitler somehow managed to escape death from the bomb that blew up in the, his wolf's lair, but Bonhoeffer became linked in the ensuing sweep of investigations, tortures, and executions, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds were tortured and executed uh, during that time. February the 7th, 1945, together with other imprisoned high-ranking military leader conspirators, he was transferred to Buchenwald concentration camp where he lived another seven weeks. On Sunday, April the 8th, 1945, with Germany in shambles and, uh, and Hitler only three weeks from taking his own life, one of the prominent prisoners asked Bonhoeffer to hold a service for them. This was Sunday, April the 8th, 1945. Bonhoeffer spoke from Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. And out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, we have been born to a new and living hope. He had just finished the closing prayer when the door opened and two men said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. For all prisoners who heard those words, they knew it had one meaning, the scaffold. Fellow prisoner Payne Best, who survived the war, says, we bade Bonhoeffer goodbye. Then Bonhoeffer drew me aside, he says, and he said these words, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. And he was hanged. He was 39 years old. It's one of the things that I believe Christians in the West are going to begin facing. Some are already making their decisions. They're stepping aside from following Christ. 
They won't end. But we need to make our decision now that we will not flame out. Amen? No matter what, we're going to stand with truth and we're going to stand with... We're going to stand for Jesus Christ. I don't mean we'll be stupid and do crazy things. No. But we will not back down. John Mark uh, is an interesting uh, person. And, you know, perhaps, you know, you, you've listened in this message and, and you're coming, you know, we're coming to the end of the message here. And you're looking through those, at those five things that I just listed there. And uh, you're examining your heart and you're saying, you know what? I have, I've fallen out of the race. I've dropped out. I've slowed down. I've flamed out. I've become upset. Or whatever the case is. You know what God says to you? Get up. God says to you, get up and get going again. He's a God of second chance. Did you know that? Uh, John Mark is a wonderful character to study. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were called by the Holy Spirit to go out and, uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. And so they wanted to go. And Barnabas had a cousin. His name was John Mark. And so Barnabas, being the kind of guy he was, he said, let's bring John Mark with. Paul said, yeah, sure, fine. And away they went. At the first sign of opposition and persecution, it says John Mark, this is in the book of Acts, turned around and went back to Jerusalem. He couldn't stand the heat. He wasn't going anymore. Well, on the subsequent missionary journey, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go and visit the churches and the work that we've started. Let's see how they're doing. Barnabas says, great idea. Let's take John Mark with us. Paul says, are you kidding? He quit. He's out. One strike and you're out. Barnabas said, no, 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 no. We take him with. And the disagreement was so sharp, according to Scripture, that Barnabas ended up taking uh, John Mark, his cousin, and Paul paired up with Silas. It was the first church split. And uh, we find it in the book of Acts. Because Paul didn't, uh, didn't think that he deserved another chance. But you know what's so exciting about this story? When we get to the end in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul is about to die. We've already been looking at a couple of verses out of, out, out of his last letter to anybody. And he sends this letter, and he says the following words. He says, Luke alone is with me, he says to Timothy. He's already had his sentence. He's going to die. He knows he's going to be martyred. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful for me in the ministry. Is that fantastic? Church, is that fantastic? That's amazing. God is the God of second chances. And if you're alive and breathing, check your pulse. You can, get back into the, you can get back into the game. John Mark had quit. Paul wanted nothing to do him. But he was back in the game. And I'm very glad that God gave me a second chance. And he's given many of you a second chance. You know something? When somebody leaves our church, and uh, we've had many people leave, but the net growth is always there, as I've said before. And people, you know what, Fran and I have learned this over many, many years of ministry. One of the things I, I never do is I never leave on bad terms because I know they're coming back. I assume they're coming back. And many times they do come back. And you know, when they do come back, I don't greet them at the door and say, I never say things like this, haven't seen you around for a long time. That's not a good greeting. And by the way, welcome ministry, don't do that, Okay. 
or I don't say, glad you came back, or where have you been all this time, or are you back, are you staying this time? No, I never say that. You know what I do? I, I, I grab their hand, and I don't crunch the kn knuckles because I'm not angry. I just give them a nice, warm squeeze, and I look right into their eyes, and with deep sincerity and meaning, I say to them, I'm so glad you're here today. And I mean it with every bit of my breath. I'm so glad. Because you know what? The person that you're welcoming back, that might be their second chance, but you might have already had 20. Isn't it true? I'm just glad that God is the God of a second chance, aren't you? And he says, if you have flamed out, it's time to get up and get going again. I want you to end well. And so um, I like that. On occasion, I've received an email in which someone apologizes. How do I respond? Quickly. Those I don't wait on. I respond quickly. And I say nothing about what they've done or what they're apologizing about. You know what I do? I just go, Southland hasn't been the same without you. You are one of us. Welcome. That's what I say. That's how, that's how Jesus treats us. Amen? And I, listen church, I want each of you here to end well. I want to end well. And you know what else? I want Southland as a body to end well as well. And that's why we're working not just to grow here, but to, to bring renewal to the other churches in Canada. Stuff. We want to end well. Amen? Amen. And uh, God calls us to that. Here's your little assignment for this, uh, for this week. Meditate on 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 8. Those were passages that, that we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. Go through those five things and ask the Lord if there's a place where you've slacked off, you've, you've backed off, you've been slowing down, or you've quit, or you've dropped out, or you've flamed out, and ask him to speak to you. And, uh, you know, last weekend, Chris, uh, gave, uh, you know, he, he had something. We were supposed to meditate on Luke chapter 19. I did. And God spoke to me powerfully. It was just amazing. Oh, did God bless me. And the other thing is, read Bonhoeffer's book, 550 pages. Have it read by next week. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Are we going to keep going, church? Yes. Are we going to keep going? Yes. Amen. We're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. And we're going to finish what God has given us to do. We're not holding back. We're not stopping. Let's pray. Jesus, we give our lives and commit it wholly to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you went all the way and you, you didn't stop. You didn't burn out. You didn't flame out. You didn't stop till you finally could say, I finished on the cross. Thank you for Paul, who is such a good example, and in the end, he also said, I have finished the race, and we commit ourselves today as individuals, as couples, as families, and as a church body as a whole to finish what you've given us to do. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying, Amen. Amen.